Welcome to the Future Think podcast from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with my colleague, Andrew Maynard, we chat with a variety of experts on and off campus about science, technology, innovation, and policy. This podcast brings you the hallway conversations where we think about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I had a new experience in that we had a guest with us via Skype. Uh, So the sound is a little bit different in this episode, and hopefully it won't be an issue to enjoying the conversation that we had with Dr. Camille Nebeker. Um, She's an assistant professor in the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego, where she is located, which is why she wasn't with us in Tempe, Arizona, and instead uh, by Skype. And we talked about a project that she's working on called the Connected and Open Research Ethics, or CORE Initiative, which is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, um, as, as well as uh, UCSD funding. And this is uh, very involved with the work that I do um, and, and many colleagues do around wearable health and medical devices and some of the challenges that we face when we're working with studying new technologies. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation uh, that we had because Gosh, some, so many of the issues are so widely applicable to those who, of us who are spending a lot of time thinking about innovation and thinking about the future in places that we aren't accustomed to being in our scholarly world um, whenever we're doing human subjects and animal research that requires oversight with IRBs. So before we begin, as always, very first thing, thank you for listening. And if you like what we're doing, please tell your friends. You can let us know what you're thinking about our episodes on Twitter at FutureThinkPod. You can leave us comments on our Facebook page, FutureThinkPodcast. You can download our episodes and subscribe on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on Google Play. And you can find our complete show notes uh, in those places as well as on our website, sfis.asu.edu forward slash FutureThink on with the podcast. Hi, Camille. Hi, you guys. Hi. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for Skyping with us today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, us too. This is, I should mention, this is a first for the Future Think podcast um, in doing it by Skype. We're we are actually using technology, actually which is a bit scary. It. Yes. <laughs> So, Camille, you came to us sort of um, in this instance through one of your postdocs, who we know here at ASU, working on the CORE project. So can you tell us about the CORE project? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, We, I think it was probably about three years ago, maybe three and a half years ago, um, some of my colleagues in behavioral medicine were using wearable technologies to try to understand what what and how people behave in their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. So up until this point, we really were um, limited by self-report and by observations in laboratory settings. 
and my colleague Jacqueline Kerr wanted to find out how people who um, she, she studies physical activity and she wanted to see how people move in their day-to-day life and what she calls in the wild so she um, got NIH to support a study where they would wear accelerometers so that she could see how they were moving um, she had them wearing a GPS device so she could see where they were when they were moving and then she also um, asked the participants in the study to wear a device called a sense cam that was made by Microsoft um, at Oxford you know, years ago to help people who had dementia learn more about how their day went. Mm-hmm. So it's a wearable camera that's outwardly facing and you wear it on a lanyard around your neck and so it comes to right about the chest and it takes first person point of view so what I see is in my image and so when the institutional review board reviewed the study to determine whether or not human people could be participants in the study they were concerned about people who may be um, captured in the image by the camera who mm-hmm. were not research participants sure. and so I am a long-standing IRB member I was um, at San Diego State University for 15 years where I helped them develop their human research protection program and now I've been at UC San Diego for the past three years mm-hmm. and also serve on their IRB and realized that um, you know, they asked me to help them figure out how to navigate getting approval. And when I saw the kind of data that they were collecting mm-hmm. and the tools that they were using, I really saw that, you know, this is incredibly innovative, but it's something that was completely unfamiliar to institutional review boards. Right. So the core basically got started with a grant that I wrote to the NIH three years ago that did not get supported, mm-hmm. but it got scored, which was really exciting. That's good. Um, And then the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, was visiting San Diego for a meeting that Kevin Patrick was hosting for the Health Data Exploration Project, which Robert Wood Johnson Foundation supports. And there was a lot of tension at that meeting because people from industry and do-it-yourselfers and academics were all talking in the same room. And the biggest, you know, elephant in the room was this IRB review process and how do we do it? Why do you have to be so conservative? How are we going to work together? And so I approached one of the program officers from RWJ, and I told them that I had a proposal that we were ready to start trying to figure out how do we do this kind of research ethically and responsibly? Mm -hmm. How do we help bridge the gap between the behavioral scientists who really want to do this innovative work, which is basically leading to precision medicine-like studies? Mm And, and the IRBs that want to do a good job but just don't know how to do it mm-hmm. with this new kind of space. So they, they asked me if I would do a pilot of what I had originally proposed to the NIH, and I gladly said absolutely. And so we started the Connected and Open Research Ethics um, in November of 2015, and it's called CORE for short. But our goal is to bridge the gap between IRBs. There are 6,000 of them across the country. They're all starting to dabble in this, and they don't know really how to think about it. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the researchers who really want to advance this field. And so that's kind of how we got started. So, so just for my clarification here, this is really looking at the problems within academic research where we tend to be so conservative that we really don't know how to deal with um, both this new technology and this new way of exploring space around the use of technology. Is that pretty much it? That's what got me started yeah. because I am an academic and I'm working with academics. But I'm also finding as we've been moving this forward, 
I'm getting calls from people in the pharmaceutical industry who are starting to explore digital medicine. They tend to outsource their IRB mm-hmm. to fee, you know, fee for service IRBs, and they're not confident that the fee for service IRBs really understand the type of data that they're collecting, mm-hmm. the possibility that people don't really understand what kind of data they're giving up, and they want to possibly interact with the core community to find out whether or not they're doing the right thing. So I've been approached by pharmaceutical companies as well as um, the high-tech companies who are now getting into biomedical research like Google, and I haven't been connected with um, Apple, but the people from Google who who are working with Verily, which which is one of their spin-out companies. Right. I've been talking with them a little bit. So, and and I remember this is sort of going beyond personalized medicine, but I remember the, the whole palaver over Facebook sort of doing research and people asking, well, how did this get past an IRB? And um, I, I almost got the impression from at the time that, that Facebook was saying, IRB, what's that almost? Um, and I suspect there are people listening to this that think, this is sort of a very esoteric academic acronym. What are we talking about here? So I just, Sort of give us the the really sort of noddy's guide to what an institution review board is and why it's so important, certainly within universities. So, gosh, this takes us back about fifty <laughs> years, yeah, maybe even a little bit longer. Um, and what was happening is is research that was being conducted by academics was getting published, and and some of the people that were reading these articles were really concerned about the kind of research that was taking place. They could see easily that people were being um, abused and so Harry Beecher wrote an article that was in the New England Journal of Medicine that kind of exposed several studies you know in the 20s that were problematic and he asked his colleagues he says we need to have some kind of peer review process and that's what basically led to this institutional review board that has become more of a behemoth Mm -hmm. but in, in reality in the day it was really how do we get our peers to help each other do the right thing right and that's what started it yeah and and this ties in so much with a couple of our previous podcasts where we challenged this idea of of, um, science being sort of moral or ethical or sort of generally sort of good with built-in values Mm -hmm. Um, and it just highlights the fact that scientists can do things which are a little bit dodgy and maybe not quite right if we don't have the right procedures and and institutions in place. Well and not even dodgy but just not even thinking Uh, through you know I think Camille when you said um, people don't realize what the extent of the data we're asking them to give up might be and we don't even understand the extent like we don't understand what the potential use is for some data maybe yeah and, and scientists tend to like to collect data right and they're collecting more data than they know what to do with i, I um, would say and as a scientist I, that's a fair statement <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah but the other thing i just wanted to add to this is is with the behavioral scientists, and this is not, ex- I mean, I'm learning that the computer scientists, the informational scientists, there's a lot of people working with a lot of data. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting for me is that my colleague was collecting data from healthy people who volunteered to be in a study. They were recruited through, Sky, um, um, what's it called, um, Craigslist. Oh, okay. So, I mean, these, these are just people. These are not patients. Sure. These are people, and now they're, they're capturing really personal health data. Mm-hmm. And there's no requirement, there's no HIPAA, the Health Information Portability and Accountability mm-hmm. Act, that protects 
health data in your medical record, there's rules about how you store and keep and share health information right. when it's part of your health record. This is not part of a health record. There's no rules to guide how she's supposed to be keeping a lot of this data. Right. These images, um, one person wearing a camera for one week captures 30,000 images. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of data about a person. Yeah. You know? It is a lot of data. And, you know, as a researcher working with wearable devices and people want to volunteer to participate in these, you know, tracking studies, and we think there's a whole lot that we can learn, um, but we are, there's quite a bit of pushback from IRBs who are, I think, rightly tend to be conservative in how they approach new technologies. And, and it seems like there's just such a, um, such a tension there between uh, you know giving people the platform to engage and participate in research and paternalistically right. protecting them right? so so actually I you know so I, I face this quite a lot especially with my students where we come up with an idea and say wouldn't it be really cool if we just started talking to a bunch of people about things or we started getting them to interact with certain mm -hmm. types of technology and just see what happens um, and then all of a sudden the shutter of the IRB slams down and we suddenly discover we have to jump through a thousand one hoops mm -hmm. just to test a, an interesting idea and it's frustrating yeah. but yeah but but going back to sort of those, those early 1920s with, with some of the, the seemingly sort of good studies, which actually were very harmful, mm -hmm. you can see how easy it is for academics to very naively think, this is a simple, this is an easy study, nobody's harmed, right. and yet not realize that the data we're collecting, if it gets into the wrong hands or it's used in the wrong ways, could potentially be very harmful to people. So it, it, it is a really complex situation where I don't think we can be allowed to do whatever we fancy. But at the same time, there's really important and cool stuff that probably should be done in some form. Yeah, so so what are you, uh, now I know you've got, um, uh, you're forming an online community of sorts, is that right? Yeah, so to get to when we first launched this and and with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation support, they gave me enough support to really dial in on IRBs and researchers because I'm looking at this as who are the stakeholders, who needs to be involved in the conversation, and how do we start to engage them? And IRBs exist. They are they are part of and parcel of the academic fi fabric. And so to just say, well, you know, you're not thinking, you're not coming, you're not up to speed, so what else can we do around you? So we need to bring them on board, mm -hmm. but how to do that? And so John Harlow, who was, is working with Eric um, Fisher and also Eric Heckler, mm -hmm. he was interested in this question, and fortunately they introduced him to us because we were already starting down that pathway. And he came with me to Boston to a meeting that's called Public Responsibility in Medicine and Research, mm -hmm. which is the um, professional association for people who are affiliated with IRBs and people who do research on research ethics. Mm -hmm. And so we did focus groups there. We enlisted the people who are in the trenches, who are trying to figure out how to review these studies. What is it you're doing? How are you doing it? What kind of help do you need? 
what would be acceptable? What, you know, how would we create a forum or a platform that would be useful? So we got their input. We learned that they're concerned about being inconsistent. They're not familiar with the technology. They, um, it's happening too fast. Mm -hmm. They can't trust that the IT person that may be available on their campus will be savvy enough to be responsive. And so they said, yes, if you create a community, we will come and we will, you know, contribute and we will figure out how to make this work better. At the same time, I'm talking to scientists and hosting workshops and doing interviews to ask them what would be helpful to you. How could we make this community work best? And so they said, if we had a place where we could ask and answer questions and help each other out, that would be ideal. If we had a place where we could post our IRB-approved protocols to share with other people, that would be helpful because that way, when somebody asks me for the 17th time, how did you get your GPS study through the IRB, I don't have to spend 30 minutes recreating what I did. I just post it on the core resource library, I show them where it is, they have access to my consent language, they have access to my protocol language, and so they told us what they wanted, what they needed, and we built that. And so we've, we've got a network of, I think, 220 people now, and we have not really pushed this out full speed, so this has been growing by word of mouth, and we have people that represent privacy experts, technologists, um, data scientists, all kinds of scientists. Honestly, it's 50% scientists, 35% IRB people, mm-hmm. and there are participants in our network. I mean, and that's ideal because we really want people who are participating in these studies to help drive the bus. What do they want to be protected from? We don't want to. We don't want to create a system where where we preclude people from having access to studies. And IRBs are conservative. They get scared. And now if they can go and see, well, University of Washington approved this, it looks Mm -hmm. decent, let's adopt what they did and try it out here. So that's what we're trying to do is create kind of a community where we work together. Yeah, so to me that's actually really exciting because you have to realize that IRBs aren't there to stop things happening. They're actually part of a, a, a process in an organization which is there to support good research. So they, they're obviously wanting guidelines so that they can make sure that good and appropriate and necessary research goes ahead. Um, and this seems like such a vital way of making sure people know what they can do and how to do it and maybe what not to do. Yeah. Yeah, because people don't always think about the repercussions. Yeah. And we don't really know what those risks are. Um, But I really do want the people to be involved in that conversation. And recently I was um, asked to join the Precision Medicine Initiative and we'll be working with um, Dr. Topol's group at the Scripps Translational Mm -hmm. Science Institute and helping to shape what the... um, all of us research program looks like and that's a study to enroll a million people Mm. and this million people will be a a national resource for conducting large-scale population studies and we have to work together to make these kind of programs happen yeah so just thinking about the risk here for a moment so obviously if you're doing say a clinical trial of a drug we've got a fairly good idea of what we mean by risk in terms of either side effects or the drug not working or or people having very serious complications Mm -hmm. and we can sort of draw sort of borders or sort of 
demarcations around what is an acceptable risk versus what is an unacceptable risk, usually sort of based on risks versus benefits. Uh, but when it comes to personal information and um, more subtle indicators of health and well-being, especially when you're looking at, at lifestyle and non-communicable diseases, I, I'm guessing it's actually really hard to work out what is an acceptable benefit, what is an acceptable risk. Um, and is it fair to say that what you're doing is beginning to help understand where you draw those those boundaries about what is good, what is bad, and where the trade-offs are? Yeah, absolutely. Because we, I mean, clinical trials, these look so easy in comparison. Right. Really easy. <laughs> and, you know, this this new kind of research, I mean, so if I, if I break it down, and we just published a paper where we where we talked to people who were in the study that that wore all of those devices that I mentioned to you to ask them, what was your experience? What did you think of the consent process? Did you feel prepared? To was the study what we actually told you it was going to be about? Did you know were there any surprises? So we're getting feedback from people, but what where we're kind of um, uh, concerned is the informed consent process already is problematic. You know, people don't like to read. They don't want to read <laughs> 20 true. pages of stuff. They don't know how to navigate a consent form. They, it doesn't come with a table of contents. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, you get this this really dense document that is asking you if you want to do something, and it just seems like overkill when compared to what you're being asked to do. Right. So I think we need to really work on, on really th rethinking how informed consent happens. But in addition to just how it happens, we have technology literacy issues. We don't know what people understand about technology or their data or how it's captured and what wireless means, what real time means. These things are, are foreign concepts to most people. Yep. So they don't get it and they're not going to ask you what it means. So there's technology literacy. There are cultural differences. Um, you guys are in Arizona. I work with a lot of Latino populations here in California. Mm -hmm. They have different concerns. If you ask them to wear a GPS device, they have really different concerns oh, for sure. than somebody is, you know, that that is a, you know, a, a Caucasian academic that is from Silicon Valley. So we also have um, issues with data management, like what should the, how should the data be stored, how should it be shared. How long, you know, what's the security protocol? And then the new thing that is really puzzling, and I'm not sure how to how to approach it, is the bystander. Mm. The people that are captured by virtue of their proximity to somebody who has agreed to be in the study right. that's recording either their voice, voice or, or video, images. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so these are new things that we're, we're, we're just starting to do some empirical work on, and we're at the very, very, very beginning of this new way of doing and, research and and just for the for the listeners to be clear on that because i think this is both fascinating and worrying where you end up with massive data sets where you've got not only data from your your primary cohort but you've got embedded in that data from the people that live around them mm -hmm. and interact with them um, it may not be obvious what the risks are there, but with big data, there is so much opportunity to mine those data and make connections which you wouldn't otherwise make. Actually pull out information which may be harmful to people in ways that it's very hard to predict. And that, I imagine, is actually quite difficult to, to wrap our heads around. You know, it is, but think about, and I, I'd like your, your thoughts on this. Okay, as a consumer who uses Google, 
Okay, so right. your mm-hmm. your search terms are health. It could be health information, mm-hmm. right? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you you as a consumer are giving up a lot of your information for a convenience, but now as a research subject, a participant in a study. So tell me how you think about the difference <laughs> between those two. Well, that, I think you're exactly right. Um, there's there's a greater um, burden, right, placed on researchers. If you're starting a company and you're doing, you know, you're engaging in data-related activities for profit, it's a free-for-all. But if you're doing it as a researcher to try to generate new knowledge with people's, not only just inviting people to participate, but specifically getting their consent to participate, right, then there are all of these hoops that you have to jump through, whereas Google assumes consent, you know, by the virtue of somebody putting a search term in. Yeah. I, so that that is such a difficult one. I think this gets to the heart of the, the ethics here, because on, on one hand, you, you take the example of um, mining Google searches and tying them back either to individuals or, or certain demographics. That's something we, we allow to happen on the whole because we don't even think about it. We tend not to, to question it. Mm-hmm. But you could see that Google mining that information could actually come out with conclusions that could impact certain sort of sectors of society very profoundly. The trouble is, I think, as soon as you push it over to the academic realm, you may be proposing to do exactly the same thing, but you're forcing people to think about it and think about the consequences. Um, And I'm not sure we've got the right ethical framework to begin to navigate through that minefield yet. Because I know for myself, I I will do things without thinking about it, but as soon as somebody forces me to make a decision, Mm -hmm. everything changes. Um, And that's essentially what we're doing. We're forcing the academics to think through the consequences of their decisions in a way that doesn't happen with something like Google searches. So do we worry that it stifles academic thinking or that it's stifling research because people just say, listen, I don't want to have to figure this out and jump through these hoops. So... I'll just do something else with my academic time. That's a good point. I think I'm going to take a step back on that and just think about what what is our obligation to the public? What is our responsibility to society mm-hmm. as researchers? And I think about, let, I'm just going to use a wearable fitness product. I, w- I won't name a name. But if I use a commercial-grade fitness product as a research tool, mm-hmm. There may be mechanisms where I can get that person enrolled without them having to create an account. Mm-hmm. There may be other situations where they actually have to create an account in order to use the device. And when they create an account, they agree to the terms of service. Right. Okay, nobody reads the terms of service. Right. They're not meant to be read and they're not written to be understood. So what is our obligation as researchers to, to take from that terms and conditions the information that's critical for somebody to know and understand and embed it into the informed consent process so that we're actually doing a public service Hmm. by educating community people about what they're normally agreeing to without ever knowing what they're agreeing to. 
Right, that's a great point. And as uh, you know, I do research with wearable, consumer grade wearable devices, and the protocols that I've been working under that have been approved have said that, you know, the patient is going to, or the subject is going to use this device according to the, you know, commercially available devices, uh, you know, terms of service. And sometime in some of the protocols that I've worked with, we've had the subject basically create uh, their user identification without any identifying factors other than an email address that they provide. But we don't have them put their real name, we don't have them put their you know birth date or where they live. However, when they're using these devices, many of them have GPS in them, you know, they do then become trackable and they are tied to an email address right. so that we can track them. Right. This is, it's more problematic so, than I thought about when I started doing this research several years right. ago. So, so to me, there are two things that come out of this. The, the first one is going back to why we worry about this in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and it's protecting individuals. Yeah. Um, and I suspect, and I, I think I'm probably talking for you here, um, but if we're thinking about the ethics of institutional review boards here and making decisions on what is appropriate and what is not, we've got to go back to the basic ethics surrounding what is appropriate to do to people, the risks that we put other people um, in front of versus what is not appropriate. So start from first principles and, and build up. But the other thing that strikes me, which I, I think is part of this sort of really sort of complex mush here, mm -hmm. is the fact that as far as I understand, companies like Google can do stuff that academics cannot do. Right. Um, and how do we square the circle there? That's a good point because, um, you know, they can ha ask a question on Monday and have the answer by Friday. Right. Mm -hmm. we, can, yeah. we can't do that in the academic world. And so I think we're putting a lot of our academic researchers at a disservice. But I, you know, I also think it's just really critical that we try to bring the public up to speed about what research is. Yep. Yeah, I, I don't I mean first thing that you know when when I think about and I mentioned that the informed consent as we know it is is critically flawed because the first sentence or two is we're asking you to participate in a research study. Yep. If you choose to participate, this is what you'll do. Mm -hmm. And we assume that they know what a research study is. That's and a good people point. don't understand what that means. So so can I go well, even one, yeah, one step further there. So the, the last um, study like this that I was involved with, um, I obviously had to go through the, the informed consent stuff and everything, and it was nightmarish. Um, first of all, it was, so this was something that was IRB approved. Mm -hmm. um, the stuff I was asked to read made no sense. Mm -hmm. It was badly put together. I mean, so I'm an academic and it was nonsense to me. Yeah. So I have right. no idea how other people cope with this. It's a whole system which is designed by academics for academics. In fact, obviously not even for academics. I'm not quite sure right. who's supposed to respond mm -hmm. to this. So clearly, even if the, the, the structure and the approach is right, the implementation leaves a lot to be desired. And I talk to a lot of my colleagues, and this is just anecdotally, because I'm on the IRB and I see these 
consent forms and I often am the one person in the room saying you know this meets the criteria but it's not it's not even appropriate to put this out in the field right and it's almost embarrassing to think that this is what we're standing behind and then I'll ask my colleagues like what do you do when you get this how do you use this to interact with people that you want to engage in the study like how do you work around this thing and they say they work around this thing so people are taking this approved document that the IRB thinks that they're implementing, but they're mm-hmm. saying it's just so inconceivable that I would engage in a conversation and build a relationship, which you need to do to engage a person in a study. You can't do it with this dense document that you're asking them to sign because it's almost like you're doing this this shady thing. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, I'm really doing a survey, and I just want you to you know do this for this many days. But this consent document, you actually have to sign it, and it says a lot of stuff. But I mean, it's it's funny to me how many people said, "Yeah, we have a different approach every time we do this." And so they, what happens is the IRB approves it, they get it into play, and then they come up with a protocol for how to integrate it into their recruitment scheme. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that is known by IRBs. But this is the cool thing: is that because of the Precision Medicine Initiative, mm-hmm. they got a really nice supplement, which is the bioethics supplement that I'll be um, really very much involved with that starts now. And what we're doing is taking a look at the federal regulation, the common rule, and my interest is dialing in on the informed consent and how is it being implemented and how is it working. And don't just talk to IRB directors and researchers, but I want to talk to people who are actually part of not not people in clinical trials that's a whole different group people that are not yet you know who are not sick they're healthy people they want to be in studies but how does that consent document work as either a facilitator or a barrier so so this is a bit of a meta question but how do you do studies that involve the study of how people respond to informed consent forms and participate in studies like this if you if you follow that yeah good question (laughs) You know, I think it's going to be a lot of, um, and we're going to have a planning meeting on this on Wednesday of this week, but I I do think it's a lot of formative research, a lot of qualitative research, Mm -hmm. um, where we get people to come together in rooms and we talk to them, like, what does this document mean to you? What words do you even understand in this? And what what could we do to do it better? How would you like to receive information? How often would you like to receive it? And do you want it to look like this or do you want it to look like this? Because I think like even when, if you could just say these are the key points that you need to know about the study in, in a bullet, mm-hmm. you know, do you want to know more about any of these points? Here's how you could find out more. And a lot of things, you know, a lot of, we're used to this one-on-one informed consent interaction, which is in itself awkward because of that document. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to population health studies and informed consent is happening on your cell phone (laughs) and you don't have a person to interact with anymore, Mm -hmm. how should we adopt this dense document and throw it on an iPhone? Or could we do something really innovative and use technology to actually enhance informed consent? Camille, that is so exciting. I cannot wait to see that (laughs) (laughs) coming forward. When do you, so we're talking in December 2016, um, when do you, like, what's your timeline moving forward? When are you going to have new things to put out into the wearable, new technologies research world? So 
we have a two-year grant with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and now I'm in year two, and I have 11 months to go. So a lot of my work this year is going to be on finding sponsors who will help support us moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also working closely with people who are leading innovation around informed consent that we don't hear much about, but I'm trying to bring them into the conversation so that we can benefit from what they're learning. And I think, like I said, with this supplement from NIH, we have now the platform to do some really amazing research on how to improve informed consent. So all of that's gonna be coming together this year and everything that we learn, we're gonna be sharing on the core platform. Well, that is really exciting. And the core platform, I know I've got it. I'm just navigating on my laptop to, oh, we just, uh, it's it's thecore-platform.ucsd.edu, is that it? Right, yeah. All right, so we'll put that in our show notes so that people can go and um, hopefully participate in that because I know one of the, getting back to something you said earlier, one of the keys there is building this community of people who are interested in sharing their experiences and helping you move forward. Yeah, I mean, this community will grow. It, it, has, to, it has to be, it's not me that's going to answer these questions. I mean, I have to have a community of people that feel like they have the expertise. And at this point in time, when somebody asks a question on the forum, and I don't know, I mean, I obviously don't know these answers. So what I do is I find the person that I think can answer it. So I'm doing a lot of hand-holding right now to try to bring people together and show them how this works. Mm -hmm. But when it starts happening organically, which it is now starting to do, that's, when it's, that's when, where the power comes from. That's so exciting. It's congratulations on all of this work that you're really just at the, the very starting piece of, and it's exciting to see it beginning to open up. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk with you both. It's, it's very exciting, and I appreciate the opportunity to share it. Great. This has been great. Absolutely. And hope we can check in with you again and see where things are coming. Yeah, definitely. Super. Thank you, Camille. Bye. That. You guys okay. take care. Thanks. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. The Future Think Podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Our production assistant is Ana Lopez. Please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and on Twitter at FutureThinkPod.